1: Chris. Hi, Farah. So what exciting quickfire round have you got for me
0: this week? This week, it's all about business and the world of work. <laughs> Zoom calls or face-to-face?
1: Face-to-face. Every single day of the week. I think I've had enough Zoom calls over the past six months to last me for a lifetime.
0: Amazon or the high street?
1: Of course, I should say the high street, but I actually hate going to shops, so... Um, <laughs> So Amazon.
0: A more controversial one, Richard Branson or Alan Sugar?
1: I'm going to go Richard Branson, because I know he's had a hard, people give him a hard time at the moment, but I think Richard Branson has created an absolutely iconic brand in Virgin. um, And he's created a number of iconic businesses. Uh, And I, in the days when we used to be able to fly, I used to really enjoy getting Virgin Atlantic.
0: Well, let's go to other forms of transport, cycling or taking the tube to work.
1: I'm not a big fan of the Tube, uh, so cycling. Although I'm not really a big fan of cycling in London either, so the honest answer is neither, but I'm going to say cycling.
0: And finally, after-work drink or after-work gym?
1: A pint outside a pub uh, in Soho is just one of life's great pleasures. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership podcast powered by Intelligence Squared. I'm Chris Hurst, author of No Bullshit Leadership, and in my day job, I'm global CEO of Havas Creative Group. Leadership is difficult but not complicated, and in this series, I want to help you cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by different inspirational leaders who do just that, leading change in their worlds of business, technology, sports or politics. My guest today is the business leader, innovator and author Beth Comstock. We're speaking in a special live recording hosted by Founders Forum. Beth, you've spent nearly three decades at General Electric as Chief Marketing Officer and then vice chair of Innovation. Before that you were president of Integrated Media at NBC Universal. Your vision and innovation transformed both companies. You championed GE's transformation into clean energy and spearheaded the creation of Hulu before video streaming became a household term. You've also written a book, Imagine It Forward, which is about courage and creativity in the face of change. And you're on the board of directors at Nike. Welcome to the podcast, Beth. Quite a CV.
2: Thanks, Chris. Great to see you. And I love the focus on no bullshit. I think that's something uh, we both agree on.
1: I think we do. In three words, describe your leadership style. Curious,
2: determined, curious, determined, uh, and
1: tireless. Very good. Uh, if you could delete any word from the business jargon dictionary, what would it be?
2: Oh, there's so many of them. I, I'd have, the, one, the first one that comes to mind is synergy. Oh, and my other one that I'm hearing a lot these days is Keep your powder dry. Oh, that one just makes me go crazy. Anyway.
1: Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, Which leader, past or present do you most admire? Uh,
2: Well, I think present. I look around the world. We're all looking at global politics. I think um, Jacinda Ardern Ardern is just as a prime minister. I think the prime minister we all wish we had right now. Um, And uh, it's easy to look at New Zealand because it's a smaller country. But I think that what she's done to navigate the, the situation has been admirable and she's just a great leader.
1: I couldn't agree more. And what's the best advice you've ever been given?
2: Uh, well, when I first started working, I worked at NBC and G much of my career. I got to work with uh, Jack Welch, who was the CEO for a peer, famous CEO for a period of time. And he once called me into his office and uh, told me to wallow in it. And um, I thought at the time, here's Mr. Speed, efficiency, Every every minute counted, and uh, he was telling me that I wasn't taking enough time to get to know my colleagues. That I was too abrupt, and um, and that was really good advice. Uh, And so every now and then, when I go back to that being abrupt, uh, he was so good. He was a good teacher in this. I'll tell you one little side story. I I know this is a quick run, uh, but uh, he he called me in. We had a long conversation. He said wallow in it. And then three months later, I guess I wasn't heeding his advice. He called me on the telephone, my office phone. And, um, I started to talk to him and, and the phone went dead and I called his assistant. I was like, Jack, uh, we got disconnected. She said, Oh no, you didn't get disconnected. He hung up on you. He wanted you to know that's what you sound like. So I lo- it was a lesson I never forgot, uh, many years later.
1: That that's a fantastic story. We we might come back to we might come back to Jack Welsh uh, a, a bit a bit later on. Fascinating character. What's the best decision you've ever made?
2: Uh, the best decision I ever made was a personal one. Was deciding in my twenties that um, I was in I was married, had a kid, and deciding that uh, that path was not the one that was really where I was meant to be, and so took another path as a divorced single mother and kind of went forward. It was very traumatic, very tumultuous, very hard. Um, but it was definitely uh, a voice I listened to and in, in a path that I had to make work after that.
1: And the final quick, quickfire question, which is a question everybody always really wants to know the answer to, what's the worst decision you've ever made? Uh,
2: I've made so many bad decisions and the business decisions, things that were supposed to work out, people I didn't hire on. I mean, I... Um, I turned down the chance to go work at Apple twice. Um, I did it for all the right reasons, but you might wonder about <laughs> what? Um, and you see where <laughs> Apple's gone on. So that that was probably, uh, I, I did it for the right reasons, but you'd look at it uh, from an opportunity perspective, I might've missed out on some things.
1: Yeah, I, I always think there's no such thing as good or bad decisions, there's just make exactly. some decisions and exactly. keep going. So let's get into it a little bit more then. So so Beth, you, you described yourself uh, in the past, I think, as an introvert, um, but have said, I had to learn to be successful in business, which is an extrovert's arena. Do you think leaders need to have a certain personality? And specifically, I guess, do you think either introverts or extroverts make better leaders?
2: Well, I think business is this extrovert arena. I, I believe that. And so it does tend to favor extroverts, the people who aren't afraid to speak up, who put themselves out there. Um, and, um, that works against introverts. That being said, I think there are a lot of benefits to being an introvert. We can come back to that, but I think the best advice you can get is just to kind of what your mother told you, be yourself. Uh, and I had to learn that while I'm not naturally extroverted, there were times I had to step outside my, what was comfortable to me and play in that arena. So yeah, I'll give you an example. I go to a networking event um, and, you know, for business, that's important. You want to meet people. That's how business gets done. And for me, it would be easy to just go circle around the room and leave and go, yes, I, I was at the event. And I had to say, no, I am going to go and I'm going to meet somebody. I'm going to walk up. Hi, Chris. I'm Beth. And we'd probably have an inane conversation, but I did it and I could leave. And next time I would meet two Chris's and three and so on. So you just have to
1: Nobody wants to meet two uh, Chris's. My
2: husband's Chris, so I I like Chris. (laughs) There you go, with three (laughs) then.
1: (laughs) Um, I I find that fascinating because I uh, I have a, a deep terror of networking events, I have to say. And I used to work with somebody who. Is the one of the greatest networkers I've ever met, and she she used to tell me off and say, you know, you need to go, you need you need to go and get out there. And I, I admire you for that story because I I I too find it really really hard. Um, and do, do do you think that um, something you touched on about the fact that it's an extrovert's arena? Do you think that it's possibly to the detriment of businesses sometimes that that it is such an extrovert he who or she who speaks up and shouts the loudest and gets heard and introverts, therefore, who might have brilliant ideas and be brilliant leaders get overlooked.
2: Absolutely. Uh, and largely it is a he who speaks loudest still in business, unfortunately. Um, but yes, absolutely. I, I, as an introvert, I, I used to, there were times I would be like, I did not speak up in that meeting and I had a good idea and I would get mad at myself or I had a question, but somebody else asked it before I did. And, and you you just get so frustrated at yourself. So those are the things you have to train yourself. However, as somebody who's been managed and has overseen people who are introverts, here's what I think you need to think about. One, you need to make sure you have different styles of thinking and being on your team. That's like the first checklist as a team leader. Um, With introverts, they aren't going to be the loudest. You may need to call on them, and perhaps even in advance, hey, Chris, I'd love to hear from you. So just giving you a heads up, I'm going to ask you to speak about XYZ during the meeting. Another role you can play with introverts is to say, hey, we've had a great conversation. Chris, can you synthesize and just kind of tell us what you think the key points are out of this meeting? I think introverts, as by nature, we're good listeners. We're good observers because we're not talking. So we're, we're focused. And so often that means we're good observers. Another thing you can do is even after the meeting, you can say, hey, perhaps you didn't get a chance to speak here or you have some additional thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a note. Come by to see me as a way, again, to recognize people's different styles. Um, Those would be the things the people who helped me come out of my shell did that. They'd be, hey Beth, what do you think? Now at first it's like, oh my God, don't call on me. Please don't, I'm not here. So you have to get over that because when they call on you, you actually have to speak. Um, You can't say I don't have anything right now. So the other thing I would say is if you're an introvert, go into every meeting having done your homework. What are two or three questions that you want to ask from your unique perspective? Don't try to talk about gap accounting if you're not an accountant. Talk about it from your perspective. I'm a marketer. Here's what's happening in the marketplace. Here's what the competition is doing, something. And so you have to do your homework, too, so that if the team manager calls on you, you don't go, I don't have anything. You've missed an opportunity.
1: And, and you are living proof that uh, introverts make great leaders. I
2: think we do. Just as well as I extroverts. I think we do, because we listen. Uh, and I think one of the things, to your other point, is we are so busy talking and selling. And, and, and I mean, I'm sure you advise many of your clients a, a good... I always felt our agencies, the best agencies were the ones that knew us better than we knew ourselves. That requires a lot of listening, yep. and so you're. Hopefully, I imagine you haven't gotten to where you are, and you're and Havas hasn't. With you guys just going and selling yourselves all the time, you have to listen.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I worked for somebody once, and I obviously won't name check him. Um, and uh, he was de- he. Somebody described him as for him, listening was the silences while he waited to speak, <laughs> which I think <laughs> I, I probably know him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so you, you, you kind of just touched on this in the, in the answer to your previous question. Uh, the, um, but you made history as uh, General Electric's first female vice chair in 2015. Is it difficult being a female leader in a male dominated industry? I, I might be able to guess at least partly your answer to that. But but I guess more usefully, what strategies helped you succeed in, in that? Advance? Yeah, I
2: mean, it was great that I got to be the first female vice chair, but it's also kind of a tragedy that after a 130 year old company, I had to be the first one. So, um, so long time coming. And yeah, there were, there were challenges in being the only female voice often in a room, in a meeting um, and being an introvert. And some of the other things we talked about Um, good leaders, to what we said earlier, need difference. They need difference in gender. They need difference in global experience in styles, the way people think. And so um, too often, you are not recognized of the value of your difference. You're just seen as not part of the the crowd. Um, What can you do about that? I mean, one, just persevere, just keep working on. I, I found at GE, We had groups like a women's network that ended up being very helpful for for myself because it was a place to go and go like, am I crazy or did you have this happen and how did you deal with it? So I find those groups are very helpful to just learn some techniques. And at the same time, once I got comfortable with the fact like, okay, I'm not changing that I'm a woman. I'm not trying to be one of the guys. I'm going to embrace it. It actually worked in my favor. Um, in the sense that the difference gave me a differentiation. Just quite literally, I was a woman and I could bring that point of view. Uh, In a boardroom, it used to be that that, there was a women's seat on the board. I mean, we've luckily progressed past that, but you were there to bring a woman's point of view. Um, And so I just embrace that I have a point of view. I was different in a technology company being a marketer. I was different in an industrial company being out of media and all those things. It took a while. I had to do a real confidence game with myself. But I just suddenly it was this moment of I'm different and I'm going to kind of celebrate the difference and hopefully be a beacon for other people and hire other people who are different so we can create kind of squads of difference. And that worked for
1: me. And it was more fun. It's, it sounds like you almost turned your difference into a virtue, uh, a benefit, let, let's say. Do you think that the fact that you were different, that made it easier or more, let's say, more likely that you hired, promoted, hunted out other people who might be different, whatever their difference was?
2: Um, well, I, I don't want to make it sound like it was easy in the sense it just sort of my headset got to the point like I can't change these things about me. So if I'm gonna stay here and I like the work I'm doing and I'm gonna succeed, I'm gonna to have to use the you know it's a it's the marketer in you that goes what's your unique value proposition yeah. um so there's a certain amount of confidence journey you have to go on. Um, and over time, it did make it easier to hire people who were different because other people weren't hiring them. So in some ways, why not? Again, we were marketing in an, in a tech company and, um, it was easy to find people who had a different kind of perspective just by bringing in marketers. Uh, and I think as GE got more global, we hired, and, and I think that's great, um, was a great development at the company, many more global leaders. And now you think in companies, the idea, if you don't have an Indian leader in India, what's going on with you? Um, so all of that, one thing I think is progress that's happened in business that's, that's much more, but so much more to do, so much more to do.
1: Let's talk about your, your book, Imagine It Forward. It's focused on leading change and specifically how to create a, an innovation-focused culture. It's a huge topic, uh, obviously, but but can you sort of summarize the central premise for it?
2: Yes. Well, I, um, I, I took a different tact with the book. It's somewhat personal. I tried to document, especially earlier in my career, the challenges I had, lessons learned. So it's it's not a book that's just, here's instant success, like follow these five steps and you'll be a genius. I, I didn't figure that out. I never reached genius status. It's tried, sweat, effort. Here's some things that worked and here's some things that didn't. But for me, it comes down to, I'll, I'll just touch on kind of three key things. I think one is just the power of giving permission and having a open culture that's a w- willingness to take a chance on taking risks, giving yourself permission, giving your team permission to try things. So with that is gonna come failure. We can come back and talk about that, but that's often a challenge in companies. I think the second is just the ability to get out and discover what's happening in the world. Particularly challenging now, but I think you can zoom anywhere in the world and find anything, but get out and discover what's next, what's new, start to see trends, patterns, go where things are weird. I mean, most people don't think about weird being part of their job in business. And the third is just to get to action. I mean, in most companies, ideas aren't the problem. It's actually getting them activated on. And I, in, in particular, there's two things within that sort of sub-bullets. I would say the vision, the story, being, you know, any good strategy is really a great story. And, and you have to know how to tell a story to get people to follow you to make change. And then the the other piece is just that ability to try things, rapid test and learn, try, try, try so that you're building up your confidence about what works. That's how you get good action.
1: And now I'm, I'm afraid it's the inevitable COVID question, uh, which you know we we we, we spend all our lives talking about. Yeah, we have to have. Would you change any any of the advice or any and the way you'd approach the book if you were writing it now in our strange new world? I called the book "Imagine
2: It Forward," and we're living in a time where few of us really took seriously that a virus was possible. So maybe just I'll take a minute and do a little thought experiment. I mean hopefully this has trained Mm, us all to think differently. If if I ask you now, you go to bed tonight and you wake up tomorrow or go to bed tonight saying, what's something I know is never going to change? I just, I know it's never going to change. You wake up tomorrow and you find out, oh my God, it's changed. You know, how do you feel? How do you think about, hopefully that's a different question to everybody now. The idea that we're not ever going to get on a plane for a six-month period. We're not going to be in an office with one another. We're going to be doing video conferences. Our kids aren't going to be in school. I mean, on and on and on. Those were imponderables before. So I do think COVID hopefully has given us all a sense that we need more of a practice, if you will, about Thinking through alternate scenarios. It's not saying that you're trying to bet the future or guess the future. You're just starting to not be so surprised that when it shows up, hey, I've thought about that. I have a I have a way of approaching that. I don't know how. How would you answer that, Chris? How would you answer that? You run a big company. You've had well, to think uh, through all of
1: this. Uh, yeah, hoping you weren't going <laughs> to ask me that. I, I mean, I I think the fundamentals of uh, leadership don't change as a result of COVID. But I, I do think that we, over the past, um, let's say three years, we've had four huge global events which uh, meet the Me Too movement, Extinction Rebellion, uh, Black Lives Matter and COVID. With any one of which I think uh, would be a huge discontinuous social uh, change and taken together they have put a whole load of issues right in the middle of the boardroom table for every single business, you know. And I think of those as humanity, ecology, and technology. And every single business needs to be thinking about those, and not just that they preserve of the HR department or the sort of, uh, you know, the the crisis management department or whatever. They have to, you know, the answer to those have to be part of the business strategy.
2: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, there's a whole other discussion to be had. I mean, I think we are witnessing. The end of many eras. It's hard when you're in the middle of it. You have to give yourself time to mourn for what you lost, for the dreams you thought were going to happen, the path, the job, the career you thought was going to happen, the company you you thought. And then a good leader says, "Okay, like we're going to feel bad about that. But we're also building the future. We're building possibly many different futures, and here's what they look like. And, and I love the way you, you wove in some of those tough challenges of our times. You have to be, as a leader, aware of those and listening and the feedback loops. I think that's something that's changed a lot, certainly in the course of my career, the ability we all have. Frankly, you always had it, but frankly, there are no more excuses. Talk about no bullshit, no excuses for not having good feedback loops to know when your culture is challenged by things and you're not listening to it.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. But I think the development of a of an effective organisational culture is, you know, arguably the key task. Uh, I think for a yeah, leader, it it's, if you get it right, it's a superpower. It really is, but but so difficult to do. Where do you stand on the great working from home debate? Uh, where, where do you stand on that? And what do you think the challenges that throws up for leaders?
2: Yeah, I, look, I think it's both. It's and. People need the ability to work where they work best. From a creative innovation perspective, people need time alone and they need time in groups. As a leader, you're an orchestrator, you're a conductor or, you know, creating this symphony. And so um, I believe you have to allow people room to work where they're best, most successful, and that may be home. I'd say the good thing I'm seeing from a lot of companies is all, all excuses are off the table. They, they can't say, well, we don't know if that's going to work in COVID because no one's been in COVID. So uh, companies are seemingly willing to take a lot more risk, which I love. But there is this bit of, well, we're all going to get back to the office or we're never going to get back to the office. I don't think either of those are true. Someday there's going to be some melding and hopefully it's a little bit of both and a lot more fluid. I do think we're entering much more uh, a time of fluidity. Uh, Fluidity in terms of how we work and where we work is definitely going to be on the agenda.
1: Do you think COVID will be an accelerant or, or I guess the opposite, a retardant uh, for innovation and for innovators?
2: I think it's an accelerant for the most part. You're always going to have your, usually in times of change. I mean, to me, the big thesis of why I felt to write the book was um, giving yourself permission, but just realizing that, the, that you have to adapt and, and embrace change as, as, the, as the momentum you need to, to navigate change. And so too often people, especially in businesses with hierarchical structures and rules and processes, it's like, we'll just get through this and then we can go back to what we're doing. I believe COVID has challenged that thinking for most everyone. I just look here in the U.S. I mean, it's a simple, stupidest thing, but I just noticed it this weekend. We've had, we have all these late night shows, the, the late night co- comedy shows, and they were so boring and formulaic. Everybody wore a suit and a tie and they sat behind a desk and COVID happened and they were doing it in their in-laws attic, their basement, their whatever. They stopped wearing suits, they let their hair down. Now they're coming back to the studio and they're not wearing suits anymore. And they've morphed their show. And it's something so stupid as an innovation, like I don't have to wear a tie, but (laughs) they've freed themselves. And I think that's symbolic of what you're gonna see many more people start to do. This is dumb, why are we doing
1: this? It liberates people. So as you said uh, a few minutes ago, uh, it it allows you possibly to imagine different futures. Exactly,
2: and you must do that. I, I don't know, Chris, how you if, yeah, how you which would... I
1: guess is the whole point of your book. Well,
2: and I also I wonder with your view as uh, leading such a big organization. I mean, I worry that um, in many organizations you want to make change. Like uh, there's like your you know your transformation officer and. Often that's a digital officer, but you kind of relegate change to a department or it's the strategy. Change is everybody's job. I mean, certainly it's the CEO's job, but I don't know if you need to put it in your job description, but hopefully everybody in the team feels that change is part of what they have to play a role in.
1: I think change is the CEO's job. If a CEO isn't doing that, I, I, I kind of wonder what they are doing. Because if, if you're know if you standing still, you're going backwards. And that that was true anyway. It's not like, it's not like business was easy before, right? I mean, it was hard enough anyway, um, before COVID. Um, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a thousand times harder now, I think. I think for, for many of us, we look at this time and think this is the hardest time of our careers. Um, but, but at the same time, I think we can look around and we know, we may not know who they are, but we know there are people who are making decisions now, making investments, starting businesses, making change that will transform their businesses for the, you know, uh, for the good, uh, you know, transform them in a positive way uh, off the back of this. And, and I suppose there'll also be those that, that don't. I love the way
2: you're saying that. I mean, to look at this as that one of those defining moments of a, of a leader's uh, history and that you can point to and how did they come out of COVID? I mean, it's defining their story and their strategy in that in that reaction.
1: We have no choice as leaders, I suppose, but, but grab the moment. I mean, this is the, this is the hand we've been dealt. Uh, there's nothing any of us can do about it. So, so how do we find the positives in it, which, which there are, strangely, but uh, they're hard to find sometimes. And I guess we've got to keep ourselves positive to do that, which actually leads me to something I think, again, you, you talk about. Um, you say that fear is the number one thing that holds people back. What do you think people can do to overcome that? Have you, have you got any examples of, I mean, you talked about your networking example. Have you got any examples of where you've done it?
2: Well, let me just answer first what, what holds, why does it hold us back? Because people don't talk about it. I mean, mm. you know, you, you don't want to walk into your team and go, I have a confession. I'm afraid. I'm afraid we're not going to make the quarter. I'm afraid we're not going to beat the competition. I mean, there's certain things you, you might want to keep to yourself, but there are things you need to say, I don't know how to do this. We haven't done this before. That's why you're here. That's why we're here together as a team. We're going to figure this out. So I do think it takes a very humble leader to say I don't know the answer. And I guess those would be the times when I think for myself. Those times when I was afraid, but just had to lean into it. I remember in GE when we were early on trying to get clean tech launched. We called it Ecoimagination. It was a you know it was a great marketing platform and also a very serious out of business intentions, but no one wanted to no one in the company that the CEO thought it was a good idea. It would have been so easy for him or me to go no one likes this. Eh, I, I'm afraid it's not a good idea. I remember at one point um, a customer uh, we had launched EcoImagination and um, a big customer to GE. I mean a hundred million dollar customer that big that this is bad for the industry. I'm not going to give GE any more business. Jeff Immelt, the CEO at the time, never told us who were leading this effort, never told us because he didn't want it to dampen our confidence, our courage, our force to move forward um, because he believed there were going to be other customers who were going to find it. And we had enough data saying there were enough customers. So, So I think there are times as a leader, you can withhold some of that information to keep the team going and at the same time realize that there are opportunities out there that continue that that enough data points on you to keep going
1: i love your example i i i thought for quite a long time that one of the most powerful things a leader can say is i don't know i I, and i think brene brown i think it is who, who talks about the power of being being able to be vulnerable and how powerful and how effective that can be and i you know, I, I pine for politicians who are prepared to say oh, I don't know. Oh, if you find you know, one, you could know, you this, let this, us this know? Tarryl, Maybe this...
2: Jacinda is the only one why yeah. she's on my
1: list. <laughs> Maybe Jacinda. Yeah. Maybe Jacinda, exactly. Exactly. You know, we haven't we've got quite a lot here who don't know. They just won't admit yeah. it. That's the big problem. Yeah, I know we have our um, share of those
0: too. <laughs> we've got plenty of those. Yeah.
2: But you're right. How, how hard is it just to say we don't know? But that's not gonna keep us from trying A B C. And I, I loved sort of, uh, as I went in, in my, on in my career, I wish I had learned this earlier, but just learning to ask better questions and being able to say, here's the hypothesis right now. I don't know for sure, but it's a hypothesis of why we think this is the right path. Until we get new information that tells us it's wrong, we're going to continue. That would be an easy thing for a politician to say. Don't know for sure. Here's our hypothesis. We're going to go this path, and if it we prove if it's proven wrong, we'll pivot. Uh,
1: absolutely, and I think also if you if if you aren't saying it, how do you um, how do you learn? How do you find out what's really happening? Uh, you know, I, and I think also, um, you know, even on even I often think on really, you know, you were talking about big strategic situations, but also I often think about people just sitting in meetings, and somebody will be talking about something, and you think I. I don't think I understand what that person's talking about. And nobody says anything. And when the person does, everybody's so grateful because it turns out nobody understands.
2: But you know, Chris, I think that's such a great point you're raising. I I think just that's a no bullshit uh, way to approach it. Just sometimes as a leader or if you're asking a question, I'm sorry, can you just tell me what that word means? I remember when we were trying to launch digital at NBC and also at GE. I mean, words like platform. The digital cool kids knew what it meant, other people didn 't even know, and all it took was here 's what it means, or often you say, "I think of it as this. What do you think of it as so so you I love what you 're saying, and again, a good question can can help get to the get to the nugget of what people are trying to communicate
1: you can 't really solve a problem unless you 're really clear about the nature of the problem you 're trying to solve and that 's really obvious thing to say but but often that 's quite difficult to get to the heart of, and I think for me. Um, that often can come back to things like honesty. You know, ha, ha, have you got a culture where people are feel able to be honest with each other, with you? Do you feel able and have the courage to be honest with the people that either you work for, that can be difficult sometimes, or the people that work for you? But, but unless you are, I think it's very difficult to, to, to make progress.
2: Yeah, so I think two good questions have bubbled up in our conversation. What's your hypothesis? And what pro- to what you just said, what problem are you trying to solve? Uh, it's a really good question. You may be arguing and, and each talking about something totally different.
1: Exactly. And that often is the case. Um, in an early podcast, uh, we spoke to Jimmy Wales, the, the founder of uh, Wikipedia, uh, and he told us about a talk uh, that he gives called uh, Failure, Jimmy Wales is Good at It. What role has failure played in your career?
2: Well, he's a rare person in a lot of ways, but he's a rare person who would say, I'm good at failure. I, I, I've done my own informal surveying. Whenever I uh, am with people and I say, who here likes to fail? No one raises their hand. So he's uh, he's unique in that. So I think that is the first thing is that none of us, most of us don't like to fail. To me, I, I had to come to learn uh, that I think one of the competitive advantages as a, as an employee, as a company, is how quickly can you learn? I'm a learner. I'm curious. And so to me, I had to recast failure as uh, an ability to learn. I'm gonna try this and I'm gonna, out of it's gonna come some learning. And so that speed to learn as a competitive advantage, I think also is just a nicer way of saying fail so you can learn faster. Um, and there are just ways to, to do that. So, how might you think about doing that in the course of your, your daily life? I love having a, an experiment fund. When I led teams, when I worked in a, a company, uh, depending on the budget year, Ideally, it'd be 20% of our budget, time, people focused on experimental, trying new things. Maybe some year it's only 5%. Maybe you don't have any oversight of a budget, but you oversee people's projects. You can give people freedom of time, time to think, time to try new things. And I think that works in your personal life as well. Are you carving out 20% of your time to go and discover New things, new skills, new
1: capabilities. I love that you talk about learning. I think some of the best leaders I've ever worked with uh, are just kind of voracious learners. They they have a curiosity and a, and and a, I don't I don't mean necessarily in an academic sense. I just mean learning in in any sense. Um, but their ability to to learn from success, learn from failure, learn from others, and apply adapt it and apply it. Um, I think it's a really great skill for for effective leaders. Now I've got two last quick questions for you. So what's next for you Beth after such an exciting and varied career? What's the next project?
2: Um a couple of things. One I've just I I I put out my book uh, and I I've been taking some time just to invest in my own personal creativity. So I've been doing a lot more creative writing, some of the visual art that I mentioned, a return to nature. I've been investing sort of a uh, investing my time doing more nature-based things. I recently signed on, uh, joined a team that's um, helping scale up some climate technology businesses. So I'm excited about that, something I feel very passionate about. So that's an entree back end. I continue on a couple of boards. So for me right now, just learning uh, my way forward is, is the mode I'm in.
1: My final question, if you could pick one piece of advice uh, to give to leaders who are people who are already in leadership positions or or those aspiring to leadership positions, what would that advice be?
2: I think it would be you've got to give yourself permission to take a risk, to try something. Ask yourself, why not? And you, that may sound like, well, that's great if you're just starting out. But often the people who ask that are the hardest to change that way are the people at the top of the organization. Uh, there's always an excuse. Oh, the investors won't let me. The board would never go for that. My CFO won't let me. Um, how do you know if you don't try something? And I don't mean bet the company kind of things. I mean small things. Go do an experiment. Do, reach out to somebody. Get some insight. Get some learning. I do think that is, especially where we are right now, in uncharted territory, you, you're going to find a, somebody who went through the plague, uh, the, you know, the Spanish flu of, of 1921, I 1920? I, 1920, I don't think so. Um, so no one's been here. So why aren't you going to try something? And uh, what a better time than now, because there's not any comparable time to say, yeah, I could have, you know, usually in companies, it's like, yeah, we tried that in 1982. Well, you don't have to listen to that right now.
1: I think, that's, I think that's fantastic advice, and I think that's a, that's a great point to, to, to end on. Beth, thank you so much. That really was fascinating.
2: Thanks, Chris. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you.
1: If only we could have had twice as long. And if you've enjoyed listening to our conversation, please do take a moment uh, to subscribe to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And thank you all, and goodbye.